Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Seiler. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose, very much tongue-in-cheek, the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. Well, Peter, this week I thought there's a lot going on in the United States and in the markets, as there always is. That's one of their great fascinations. Uh, But I thought we might talk this week about one of the issues around investment, which is a subject I know dear to your heart as well as mine. And that is the issue of rotation in markets, and in particular, what we call style rotation, when different kinds of shares do well uh, and when they don't. And uh, there's a number of aspects of that, uh, different ways you can categorize shares and different ways that you can see how they all move, because they do tend to move together in uh, the same direction at certain points in the market cycle. So that's a sort of backcloth of of a big theme that is going on at the moment, because we've seen some evidence of that in the last uh, few months, a kind of change in the character of what's doing well and what isn't doing so well in the stock market. So perhaps um, we could kick off and uh, I'd ask you to just talk a little bit about what we've been seeing in the last few months and and how style rotation has manifested itself, uh, if you care to kick off on that note. Good morning, Jonathan. I'd be delighted to kick off on that note. Funnily enough, the rotation didn't start on January the 1st. It started, I would say, in November. And in November, the feeling came up in the markets that at the end of the day, President Trump wouldn't succeed in ousting President Biden. And that because of Biden's approach to money, to money, quite simply, and to things like stimulus, that approach would be more conducive to a faster economic upswing in the USA, which they then called the reflation trade. And of course, what's, what happens in the USA ends up happening outside the USA in other markets as well. And so the rotation phenomenon, the big rotation, was more or less omnipresent, certainly in Europe as well. And it's based on the idea that the investors, they switch out of the profitable investments they made last year, let's say the COVID investments, and we all know what those were, into shunned corners of the market, such as U.S. banks or energy or materials or that kind of thing, which were sectors that had been beaten down last year for all the reasons that we've discussed in the past. And so, of course, as the year end approached, it was perfectly normal for window, not just window dressing to take place by portfolio managers, but also a readdressing of their portfolios for the forthcoming year. And so you had in the forefront of investors thinking this reversion to the mean, uh, which can work in both ways, of course. And so the traditional so-called value investors started seeing their, let's say, style having its day in the sun. And they got very excited because their style had its day in the sun several times, many times 
over the last 10 years. And every time it had its day in the sun, the sun went down and it was back to normal. And value investment once again turned out not to work. And so today, Jonathan, you know that uh, as well as I do, you know that today the big question is, is this time different? Are value investors going to have a few years of protracted outperformance? Is the notorious growth style, as evidenced by the fangs of last year, is that about to wither on the vine? And of course, and of course, the very important related question, are bond yields going to go up because the reflation trade is going to be right and inflation is going to come back because of all the fiscal measures triggered by President Biden or not? And so that, that, that's the question that's still outstanding today. Are we heading for inflation or is this another dead cat bounce? Okay, so we need to kind of perhaps just uh, disentangle some of these different uh, types of rotation that we're talking about. We talk about value investing and we talk about growth investing. And that is really, however, based on a fairly, I guess, simplistic distinction, if you like, between what is a value investor and what is a growth investor. I mean, many years ago in the early days of investment, we knew what that meant. Uh, a value investor had a particular set of criteria that they were looking for uh, and growth investors likewise. The difference being, perhaps broadly put, that uh, the first group, the value investors, are looking for shares which look cheap on either compared to their previous uh, ratings or compared to uh, other stocks of a similar nature. And growth investors were looking primarily for companies which were growing faster, their earnings per share were growing faster than the average and therefore uh, could be expected to deliver higher returns over time. They are Those are two distinct approaches. Um, but of course, that distinction, which was uh, valid maybe, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, is not quite so valid today, is it? I mean, it's a much more nuanced matter than simply putting people into one camp or the other. Yes. And those nuances, they come in various guises. In fact, they come in so many guises with regard to value investing that you begin to wonder whether value investing actually means anything at all. I looked up a speech given by a professor of a New York university the other day. And I discovered that there's all sorts of different types of value investing. There is lazy value investing, cerebral value investing, big data value investing, contrarian value investing, activist value investing, minimalist value investing, and so on. But what it all really hinges on is the difference between the share price and the intrinsic value of the business in question as determined by the investor. But of course, that can be so many things. At the end of the day, what the value investor is trying to do, he's trying to close the gap, which will close through reversion to the mean. And the reason, in my opinion, why, and this is just my opinion, there are many opinions, the reason why it used to work much better when you and I were younger was because there was less information about. Today, you've got so much more information and data to choose from that it becomes a lot more murky. And that's why, coupled with the fact that interest rates have remained stubbornly low in the last 10 years, it's much more difficult to put your finger on where and why the mean will 
reverse, if you see what I mean. The growth investors, I think, are slightly different. And here again, you've got to differentiate between types of growth. As you know, I'm a quality growth investor, which is something else again. But the classic growth investors, as we saw them coming out in force last year, are really more interested in the story and in the concept than in the numbers. If you take something like Tesla, Tesla makes no profits, but has gone up, I don't know, 600% or something last year because of the momentum behind it. And uh, in fact, numbers are no good for growth investors because they usually show that a lot of these growth investments, these companies are actually losing money. They're burning cash. But as long as there's momentum behind the share price, then you've got to go with the flow, not necessarily with the trend, but with the flow. Now, uh, at the same time, you can argue that these companies like Tesla, for example, it may be difficult to judge the earnings or the losses for the next couple of years. But what seems pretty certain is that electric cars, for example, are very much going to be the name of the game in the, in the next 10 years, 15 years. So in a sense, in a sense, these growth investors are taking a really long-term view and their expectation is well-founded. But of course, any investor that relies on momentum and concept and stories is more likely to put his capital at risk than those who do profound and deep research. Yes, I think that's, uh, that's clearly true. It's not necessarily to say that it's a bad approach to take in this sense, that uh, if you go back over all the academic studies about past performance of the stock market and so on, and you look at some of these so-called factors which have been uh, played a part in how the markets have performed over the years, and you know one of the reasons why there are still so many so-called value investors who advertise themselves as such is because they're relying on these studies that show that on very simple metrics like price to book value, i.e. comparing the share price to the to the uh, effective value of the balance sheet of the company, or on price earnings ratios and so on, that over the long run, over the last 150 years, that uh, value investing has delivered a small premium to the market. In other words, if you were able to hold these shares for 100 years, you would come out ahead of the market as a whole. But unfortunately, there's another factor, which is momentum. And momentum has been demonstrated to be a very powerful factor in determining returns over the long term. It's an anomaly. One of my uh, business school professors uh, describes it as a terrible um, blow to the academic community that they cannot understand why momentum should prove to be such a positive factor over the longer term, uh, which certain studies do suggest. Um, so when I say that growth investors can actually have a case, which is that in certain periods, particularly associated with certain conditions like low interest rates uh, in particular and um, you know strong economic growth, uh, that actually there is a time combined with some disruption. If you've got disruption by newcomers coming in with a new technology or so on, like uh, electric cars would be a good example, uh, that actually, even if it's a momentum trade, uh, by following these grow companies that are growing very fast, you can make an awful lot of money uh, over a relatively short period of time. And as long as you don't persist with that approach through every type of market condition, you can actually do very well out of that. And we've seen some examples in the last few years of where you know, a growth-oriented style has done very well and delivered outstanding returns for investors. 
uh, and obviously things like the Bailey Gifford funds in the UK, uh, which uh, you know some have done extraordinarily well by pursuing uh, fast-growing companies that are not yet making profits. They've done very well indeed, um, and it obviously won't work for all time. There's no method that works for all time, I don't think, but uh, it can be very profitable. That's quite different, though, from talking about kind of what's happening in periods of market frenzy when you have a lot of inexperienced investors, uh, among others, piling into shares just because they are going up and trying to get rich quick. That's a kind of separate phenomenon. If we're looking at what I call kind of serious uh, institutional investment, then I think you can make a good case in the current climate with low interest rates and a lot of technological change going on, uh, that actually growth investing is a very sensible strategy to pursue in these particular times. I don't know what you think about that. I think it's important to define growth a little bit better. Because if you have a company, let's say that has a period of 10 years, and after 10 years, it becomes more of a mainstream company, which has gone X growth, but is still growing in line with, let's say, the GDP of the particular country. So it's still going, it's still a going concern, but it's no longer growing like it did in the first 10 years. If you look at the first 10 years, this period can be divided into three. The first third is the period where those companies that survive, because most of them don't survive the first year, but those that do survive, they survive but they need cash all the time. So they need either to, ra to raise money through rights issues or to raise money on the bond market. But it's a sort of cash burn situation. And there, the stock market could very, very well give the shareholders a very, very good return because the stock market is then looking at the second third and then to the third third. And the second third is a period where the balance sheet has become stronger, where profits are now generated, where debt is, um, if you like, dealt with. And that's the period where the quality growth investor would get involved because the quality growth investor only gets involved once the company has secured a certain track record of, let's say, at least five years steady earnings growth, as well as a strong balance sheet. And then the quality growth investor gets involved at that point, whereas the growth investor was involved from the very early stages. And once the company has successfully passed the second third and is entering the third third of its growth trajectory, there again, the quality growth investor is going to make good money. However, the stock market is going to start looking ahead and is going to already, let's say, take note of the going X growth phase. In other words, when a lot of competitors have entered that space and the return on invested capital is no longer what it was, and this is immediately reflected in a sometimes even a collapse of the P-E ratio, and you find that the P-E ratio then transforms or the market transforms this company via its P-E ratio and price-to-book ratio and all the rest of it, transforms this business into a value business. And so that's when the value investors come in and fill up their boots with these cheap stocks. So actually, the trajectory of this, this company, this story, morphed from being a growth stock to being a quality growth stock, and then to ending up its life being a value stock 
and you know the value businesses then they try and gain market share by acquisition by acquiring other companies so forth. it's a totally different story but i thought it was important for us you and me in this discussion to actually differentiate growth from quality growth and also to point out that the word value investing comes in in various guises um, in the eyes of the beholder. Well, that's certainly true. There is uh, there's no number of different ways you can describe value investors. And indeed, uh, to some extent, it's a false dichotomy, as we've also discussed in the past, because to quote John Templeton, who's a, who's a guy whose methods I've studied, uh, if you look, if you're trying to predict where a company is going to be in, say, five years' time, you're trying to predict its earnings uh, and the price at which it will then be trading, you... It, there's two different variables. There's the growth rate and there is the current value when you start looking at it. And you can arrive at a good stock uh, in, by either route. You can either arrive at a stock which is actually growing fast and its earnings are growing fast and has a good balance sheet, etc. Uh, or you can do it by buying something that just is so cheap for some other reason that in due course it does make some money. To some extent, it's a temperamental thing, I think, how you actually approach these things. You know, some investors are naturally cautious and, and uh, you know, rather pessimistic about the world and they tend to towards the sort of value camp. And other people are optimistic and uh, uh, believe that the world is getting better all the time and they're more inclined to go towards a, uh, a growth perspective. And in the middle are people like yourself, Peter, who are both uh, cautious and uh, optimistic and who tend to be a quality growth investor. That all fits quite nicely as a, as a sort of psychological profiling of how you approach the market. But I think the key point is that different things work at different times. There have been periods when uh, value investing has on average, you know, however you define it, doesn't really matter how you define it to some extent, has done better than growth investing. And we saw that in the noughties. Um, and then in the last 10 years, we've seen that growth investing has absolutely um, trumped value investing. It's been a terrible period for anybody who uh, follows a traditional value investing approach. Uh, well, that's, you know, that's life. I'm not, uh, I don't think one could lead too much sleep about that. You have to do something that suits your own risk profile and something that, um, fits with your analysis of the times we're in, because there will be different periods when different styles do better than another. Um, I think what's unusual about the last 10 years, it's been quite how long the so-called value investing approach has has underperformed uh, the growth approach uh, as very sort of crudely defined. Let's just think quickly about some things that might actually affect whether, you know, so-called value growth or value or growth investing is doing well. And I do think one of the uh, clues to that, I think everybody would accept this, is when you're in a period of very low interest rates and not just low interest rates, but a period when, you know, the monetary authorities are deliberately keeping interest rates low, uh, that does tend, historically anyway, to be associated with a period when growth investing does rather better. And it's when the cycle turns, when bond yields start to rise, when the yield curve uh, strengthens or steepens, I should say, uh, that tends to be a period which is associated with value investing doing rather better. And of course, there are a lot of value investors out there who are desperately hoping that that's what we're going to see in the next few years. I'm not smart enough to know uh, when that's going to happen or indeed whether it's going to happen. But um, uh, I think it certainly will have a bearing on how these uh, different styles uh, perform. Would you agree with that at all? I would agree very much with what you said, because you've put your finger right onto the question that we need to ask ourselves right now after this preamble that we've now discussed. And I'm not clever enough either, but I tell you who is clever enough, and that's the bond market. And so I find interestingly enough that at the moment, there is a definitely a consensus opinion out there that the resurgence of 
um, let's say, the consumer and the investor and so on and so forth, as a result of the COVID vaccines, is going to enable the economies to break free um, and the stock markets are looking ahead and all these things that we know. And it doesn't matter whether that's in, in Asia or in Europe or in America, it's this worldwide phenomenon. And as a result of that, all this money that's lying dormant on consumers' accounts will be put to work and is bound to lead to too much money chasing too few goods. And that in turn is going to make bond investors leave the bond market where they're They've parked their money and go into the stock market in general and into value stocks in particular. And that is what has happened in the month of January. But, 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 say I, uh, if I look at the bond market and in particular, you mentioned the, the yield curve, the difference between short yields and longer yields. And if you focus on, let's say, the 10 year US Treasury yield, but you could do the same thing in other markets, you have got to see not only short-term evidence, but lasting evidence that the yields are going to be nudged up, going to go up slowly but surely. Let's take an example of US treasuries, which are now hovering around 1%. Uh, but they have been expected to go up to one and a half, and then up to two, and then potentially up to two and a half, without the Fed getting too excited because of their new approach to inflation. And my view is that if this happens, then you could indeed have the value investors coming and having enjoying their day in the sun again, because then you have inflation going up and pricing power across the economy and all the other effects that that might have on value investment. But if it doesn't happen, if the bond market says, well, irrespective of the, whether the central banks are keeping money artificially cheap or not, we believe, says the bond market, that there is a marginal buyer out there, pension funds, life insurance, who will take the place of the central bank and will in turn keep bond yields low. At that point, it will be the evidence that we are still in a disinflationary stroke potential deflationary environment. And under that kind of environment, I have trouble seeing how value investors will outperform. So to answer your point, I think we have to keep our eyes glued on the bond market just as much as on the stock market going forward, Jonathan. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. And uh, indeed, there have been many false storms in this protracted period of low interest rates when people have expected yields to rise and for the yield curve to steepen, as you say, the difference between longer term and shorter term yields. And it hasn't happened. It keeps on threatening to happen uh, and it hasn't happened. And uh, therefore, one has to be, I think, uh, you have to be cautious about uh, predicting it's going to happen. I think what is true, if we look back at some past historical episodes, is that when inflation uh, expectations start to rise quite suddenly, we saw that in the late 60s, early 70s, for example, uh, it can happen very quickly and it can take a lot of people by surprise. Uh, that, I think, is a historical fact. We are in a slightly different period now when we have this perhaps rather extraordinary period when central banks have made it clear that they're not going to be in any hurry to uh, take away the punch bowl in the uh, 
in the time-honored phrase of what central banks do when uh, economies are overheating. They put up uh, interest rates and drive up the uh, longer-term cost of money as well. Uh, so we, it is a slightly different period, and we don't quite know where that experiment is going to end. And indeed, at what point we will see real pressure coming for higher bond yields. Uh, I think the other point, though, Peter, if I could just uh, take a slight quick detour here, is about value investing. And it's about the kind of companies that will do well in a rising yield environment. It all depends whether you've got good balance sheets or bad balance sheets because a rising cost of money does put pressure on company balance sheets. And uh, those companies which have only survived because interest rates have been so low, uh, zombie companies, as we call them, are going to get into real trouble. And a lot of those will appear to be value uh, investors kind of stocks. They'll be very cheap, but they'll be cheap for a reason. And I think so. Therefore, then we have to distinguish between uh, value stocks, which are uh, good companies that are coming back into an environment that suits them and those that are in dire trouble and won't survive and will not make any money because they're such poor businesses. And they will be dead cheap. <laughs> cheap and, and I, dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I think that I'm glad you brought up the zombies because there are a lot more zombies around than you think, not only in the wider economy, but also quoted on the stock exchanges. And just for our listeners, the definition of a zombie is a company whose earnings before tax, amortization and depreciation and so on, those earnings are barely sufficient to cover the debit interest on their debts. So if the interest rates go up and that debit interest payment goes up, then, of course, there's a real risk that this zombie company will have to file for bankruptcy. The percentage of listed zombies out there, whether it's in the U.S., or anywhere else, you see differing statistics about that because I suppose there are differing, slightly differing definitions of what a zombie company is. But at the end of the day, the way I describe it is broadly right. And um, that percentage of quoted zombies is really a little bit too high for comfort. So if there is a an interest rate-induced massacre of zombies... I'm not sure it's going to do the stock market that much good at all. And so we have to really be very, very careful if we want to play the value game. I think we've got to look at the balance sheets just as much as any other kind of investment. But again, from what you say, it all hinges on whether interest rates and bond yields need to go up. And also, you know, you, right, you quite rightly pointed out that central banks have been falling over themselves to declare that the big long is here to stay, that interest rates will be lower for longer, that they will tolerate rising inflation much more than they used to in the past, and it won't immediately cause them to raise interest rates. But I have noticed in my career, just like you have, that central bank governors can be very quick in changing their minds because circumstances have changed. So I wouldn't always trust entirely what journalists write when they report about central banks. I think that despite what central bank chiefs are promising about keeping interest rates low forever or until inflation 
supersedes 2% and stays there for a while. I think in spite of that, we have to note that central bank governors have changed their mind in the past. And so you have to listen, I think, that's what I do, whenever Mrs. Lagarde or Mr. Powell, when they make a speech, you should actually take the trouble of listening or reading, but certainly listening and getting the body language, listening to the speech word for word and making up your own mind as to what they really mean. But that's going to be the name of the game for this year. Absolutely. And I would agree with you that just because a central bank uh, governor says something you don't want to rely on, indeed, that's one of the few weapons that they still have to actually deal with the market is to bring out a surprise. Um, and we all know, of course, what happened with the so-called taper tantrum a few years back when the Mr. Bernanke was in charge of the Fed and he, he tried to tighten the monetary conditions and the market just went into freefall. The worry is that you know, the so-called um, Fed put is still in place. In other words, the idea that if the stock market falls uh, very sharply or the bond market reacts very negatively, that the uh, central bank will suddenly turn tail even when it's trying to be more tough. Uh, so there is that worry. And I think a lot of people do, some people do worry about that, whether the central banks still have the uh, the willingness or indeed the capacity to, uh, to take away the punch bowl, as we said. Um, and that has a sort of broader issue about the independence of central banks and and uh, secondly, the question of whether or not some of them have been imbued with this uh, idea of so-called modern monetary theory, which is the idea or appears to be the idea that seems to validate the view that it doesn't really matter what you do with uh, as long as the money stays cheap. You can you can print go on printing money uh, for a long time before it actually has any real cost on the economy. And I think that's obviously a lesson that those of us who are much older vintage uh, find very difficult to believe, and we we be worried about that. But as you say, I think it's a question of studying the runes very carefully, and and being prepared that something might turn out in a slightly different way from uh, from what the consensus is uh, rather blandly and blithely assuming. I fully agree with every word you say. I would nonetheless look at it not so much from a the Fed put, but I call it the pension fund put. Because the punch bowl, when it's taken away from the market, is immediately replaced by the pension fund punch bowl. Just to elaborate on that a little bit, we don't have much time left, is the fact that these pension funds have got to make a return every year of somewhere between 7 and 8%. Well, there aren't any investments out there that are permitted by the regulations, which give you a yield of 7 to 8% per annum just doesn't exist. Where it does exist, it's not of the right risk caliber. So nonetheless, you've got these pension funds that have got incoming money all the time that needs to be invested. So they're constantly searching for yield. And we saw that in the taper tantrum in 2013, the one that you've just alluded to. We saw that the market took fright for a while, but then mysteriously the bond yield settled down again and the bull market resumed. Obviously, it's a little bit of a contrarian view, this, but I nonetheless do believe it because I've seen it happen several times in the last decade. And so I think my conclusion, Jonathan, is that this value rotation, this is my conclusion, has got short legs. It's not going to be very long. I don't know how long it could happen. It could stay here for a few quarters. But I think at the end of the day, once the 
punters have repositioned their portfolios at the start of the year, like they do, I think that um, the natural elements will once again regain control. And I think it will end up as having been their day in the sun. Now, you might say that I would say that because I'm a quality growth investor. But I say that from a certain amount of experience that we've seen this before. Well, let's be generous and say that they might have a week in the sun or possibly even a month in the sun. Uh, and, and if you really push us, you might give them a year in the sun and then we'll see whether that's still the case after that. We don't know, of course. Um, but I think uh, it's always worrying when you see a lot of consensus. There does seem to be this consensus view that this is like a, uh, this is a no-brainer. You know, the idea that uh, because we're coming out of the uh, pandemic, we know there's a vaccine out there somewhere, though it's not being distributed quite as fast as people originally hoped. Uh, there's going to be a massive amount of stimulus in both fiscal and monetary stimulus, and that's going to lead, as you say, to this, this sort of a very sharp recovery, the reflation trade, and that's going to benefit uh, particularly value stocks. I mean, I think it is more nuanced than that. I think we'll see some elements of that. Um, but uh, I think the point you made is absolutely crucial. You've got to be eternal vigilance is really the, the job. And don't just fall for any kind of obvious uh, consensus trade that has to be right. It's, it's never quite like that. It's never that simple. Uh, wish it were, because, of course, it would make life a lot easier. Final question then on this issue about style. I mean, I think what we can say, though, uh, and indeed a lot of value investors would say, is that certain kinds of uh, stocks will do uh, relatively better than they have done and things in particular, the banks, okay, a lot of people would say when you've got a, a rising yield curve, that must be good for banks. Um, and particularly given that they're no longer, their balance sheets are no longer, at least in aggregate, massively overgeared as they were going into the last financial crisis. And we are seeing signs also, uh, secondly, of a sort of a surge in commodity prices, or at least some kind of a, a bull market in commodities, uh, which is not, un, you know, if we're going to get uh, higher inflation and higher inflation expectations on the back of a reflation, you would expect to see commodity prices rising. So you might say that those two categories, at least banks and commodities, which have been in kind of long, longish bear markets on and off for the last few years, they could be do quite well. Would you agree with that? I'm afraid that I don't quite follow that same line of reasoning, because although you're totally right that they have the banks and the commodities shares have done quite well lately. I still think that the steepening of the yield curve, as far as banks is concerned, is not going to help them all that much because they don't lend as much as they used to. They've been curtailed either by events or by stress tests or by their general unwillingness to go into risky situations like that. Um, and, uh, of course, their lending role has very much been taken on which is slightly worrying, by the so-called shadow banks, those who operate outside of the regulatory regimes that banks operate under. Um, in addition to that, you have the Dodd-Frank Act 10 years ago, whenever it was, curtailing the, the trading activities of banks for their own capital. So they usually do it now for clients. And they've also been disintermediated by the arrival of fintech and all these other ways of either making payments or indeed even of borrowing money. So I think that the banks have suffered a slow erosion of their position in the economy as economic agents. 
So I wouldn't buy any banks, you know, I never did and I never will. And I don't now, even if I can make a quick return for the next few weeks or months. As far as energy and commodities is concerned, obviously the leading commodity is oil. But even oil as a raw material is being disintermediated by this obsession with uh, climate change and green and fossil fuels and this and that. So as a commodity, I think oil will be less in demand. But where it still is in demand, you can't ignore the fight that's going on in OPEC with the Russians on the side and Iran and Saudi Arabia. And uh, you would need really to assume that the Iranians will come back, fully come back on stream, that there is going to be renewed discipline inside OPEC in order to limit supply in a systematic way, which you don't have. You've got various OPEC country members who cheat in terms of their output. And so I don't see the oil price, which would need to go up by 50% from where it is now and stay there for a durable period of time. You would need to see that in order for oil exploration companies to go back into the market and expect to make a return on their investment. I have my grave doubts. You can then talk about other commodities like certain battery types to do with electric cars and how the Chinese have been buying up commodity manufacturing businesses left, right and center all over the world in connection with our Belt and Road Initiative and all that. You could. But again, I don't really see that commodities are going to be a very good five to 10 year investment from here. So I'm trying to back up my overall position on whether there is a durable rotation with making micro arguments in two very important areas that you've chosen to discuss, which is banking and energy. But sadly, I can't be convinced of the attraction of those areas as an investment. Indeed, and when you look at the companies themselves, uh, you, that often will bear out what you've been saying. And uh, I think all I'm referring to is the fact that people believe that there will be uh, some improvement in those sectors. And uh, the, the big issue for value investors is whether that uh, improvement is actually sufficient to uh, compensate for the fact that many of them are not actually particularly good businesses or have particularly strong uh, futures ahead of them particularly when faced with, uh, as you say, disruption uh, and uh, from technology and from new competitors. So, yeah, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag when we look out there. I'm, I'm determined to give value investors, as I said, a week in the sun, uh, and we may see what happens to interest rates. But I think the key to it, as you actually say, is to follow very closely what's happening in the bond market and look at those yields. Some people will say, of course, that the yields are being manipulated by the central banks. Uh, but the longer, the longer you look out across the yield curve, the less influence they can have, or at least so one believes. But it's a case, as I said, for eternal vigilance. And in the meantime, you you know, as you and I, I'm sure, would agree, Peter, the best the best uh, stocks to own, if we're going to own the stock market, are those with high returns on capital and uh, strong competitive positions that aren't going to be eroded. They will see you through almost any environment. Uh, you may not make as much money as some people will do out of beaten up cyclical stocks. Uh, but that's not really the point. The point is balancing the return with the risk that you're willing to take on. And uh, I think uh, even though some of them now look quite expensive, that's obviously a still a pretty good safe haven. I'm sure you would agree with that. 
You're preaching to the converted, Jonathan. I am indeed. I know that very well. Um, Okay, so that, I think, is all we have time for in this particular episode of the podcasts. Very interesting subject rotation, but there are many others around the world we're going to talk about in the next few episodes, uh, including some of the interesting events that have been happening in Wall Street at the time of the date of recording. Um, But we will come back to all these and other topics in due course. So thank you, Peter, for your time, as always. Thank you very much for yours, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.